I'm Samuel Davis Jr. Welcome to the Black and Blue Podcast. A black man wearing the police uniform of blue can be painful. The mission of this podcast is to understand the necessity of proper policing and fair treatment for everyone. Black and blue is a delicate balance with the scales of justice never reaching all people. These are my stories. This is my journey, a 28-year career in law enforcement that's led to making a difference in the lives of others. This is the saddest story. Y- years ago, growing up in the city of Vallejo, um, I used to have two or three different police officers that would stop and talk. And, w- and one of them actually worked at the junior high school that I went to. And I got an opportunity to know and meet a couple of these African-American police officers who actually served as people that I kind of followed and they kind of mentored me a little bit to let me understand that, which allowed me to understand that African-American men can be police officers. I saw that. And so when I saw it, I said to myself, "Okay, this is something that I can do. Um, Didn't know how it would turn out, but that was the thought process. But one of the things that they would talk to me about is problems within the own problems within the black culture and, uh, the things that they would say to me would kind of stick in my mind because I realized now that they were giving me a true understanding of being an African-American police officer. And I, I so appreciate that. But one of the things that we talked about, again, was the, the issues that blacks have in some of these areas uh, that they live in. Flash forward to so many years later and 1993, I believe, which is the second year that I was on patrol. So I was still pretty much a rookie. And I was working in North Sacramento in the area of Del Paso Heights. And I was dispatched a call. So here I am. This is Christmas. It's Christmas Day. And here I am en route to a call because... A TV was stolen from a house. And that's pretty much all the information that I get as I'm driving over there. And to me, what makes this day special is it was Christmas Eve going into Christmas. It was the last couple of hours of that Christmas Eve, maybe about 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock. And so when I get to the house, I notice a mother and a father and two younger kids. Those kids were about six and eight years old. And, you know, this is just like one of, one of the things that you see as a police officer. You just pay attention to everything. Um, if you pay attention to certain things, it will kind of give you a hint about what you're dealing with. So as I'm approaching the, the residence, I'm looking in through the, the window. Uh, the living room window is right next to the door, so I can look into the uh, um, into the home and see those four people, a mother, a father, and two kids. And so the father answers the door. He's a pastor of a church. And we talk. We start talking back and forth. And, um, you know, you vibe people sometimes. And this father was at his wit's end because his son had stolen the TV that they bought for Christmas. And the son was having problems with crack. And so the mother was crying 
kind of hysterically because the father just couldn't take it anymore. And the younger siblings, they would probably go wherever the wind blew because they, they just, I don't think they knew enough to kind of have an understanding of what was going on, but I know they had feelings for their brother. So the story goes, before I, before I was called over, they're driving off to another store, the family. They have some type of a van. I think it was a minivan. And they drive to the store. And as they're driving away, they see their brother or the mother and father see their son walking towards the house. But there's so many homes in between, they, they didn't really know if he was coming to visit them. He'd been banned from the house because of his crack habit. And in the past, he'd stolen stuff from the house. And so I asked the dad, do you think if he stole something that he would come back here? And the dad said, probably not. The mother, who is an emotional wreck about this time, obviously worried about her son, just kind of played it along. Like, well, we have to report this because if we don't, he's going to continue to do it. And I, I agree with them 100%. I was glad that they, they did um, report it. But I also flash back on things that I've seen in my past, like I've seen my own relatives be arrested and spend time in prison. And I start thinking about this young man and what this young man's path was going to be. What typically happens in these calls is you show up, you take the information from the mother or the father or whoever the witness is, you, you take that or the victim, you take that information down and you make a report out of it. And so that's exactly what I did. I had all the serial numbers and I had the receipt for the actual uh, television and um, I was ready to go. Um, it was just another call until um, about an hour and a half later, while I was actually writing the call, that very same family called back and said, he's here. Come get him. And that, again, that came from the father. And I'm thinking to myself, typically, I don't get an opportunity to see the actual suspect in a burglary. But if this is true, what they're saying, then I definitely have to go there and I definitely have to arrest this guy. So I drive to the house. I let dispatch know what was going on on the radio. And I drive to the house. And I see this African-American young man on the porch. He's sitting on the porch and he's crying hysterically. And as I approach him, I look again inside the house through the living room window. And his siblings were sitting at the window looking out at him. They were crying like he was. And then I looked at the mother and the mother was just beside herself in tears. And I looked at the father and the father just said, I need to talk to you for a second. And I came in and he said, there he is. He came back and he admitted that he stole a TV and I want him arrested. And I looked at the father and then I looked at the mother. I dare not say, do you want him arrested, ma'am? I couldn't get those words out of my mouth because I knew that the first time I'd say that, she would freak out. It's just, she knew what needed to be done. And so I stepped back outside to talk to the son. 
And I said, what's going on, man? And he said, uh, my mom's and, and dad. Now, he's saying this while he's crying, and I could barely even make out what he's saying. He says, you know, my mom and dad, they want me out. They want me to go to jail for what I did today. And, I'm, and I asked him, I said, so, you know, what did you do? Well, I stole their TV. And I said, okay, well, what happened to the TV? What did you do with it? Um, I sold it for crack. Hmm. So I said to him, hey, look, man, you have to start figuring this out. You know, you're in your early 20s. You know, your parents, you know, your dad's a pastor. You know, your mom's obviously very supportive. And I, don't, I just don't know where you leave them right now, what space you leave them in. And not to mention you and the space that you leave yourself in. You know, don't you think that, you know, you can fix this? You can kind of work on this? You can maybe, you know, do some rehab or something like that? So he was all down with that. He, he wanted to, to do the right thing for his family. It was his condition or his addiction that put him in a situation where he stole their TV. Now, I drive him to jail. Last thing I said to the parents were, he's going to be okay. Just don't give up on him and make sure you keep working on him. You know, and I'm like, Pops, you know, you, you know, talking to the dad, you know, you're, you're a reverend. You're a pastor of a church. You know, you're going to have to do something to get this person back. And, you know, you just can't stop trying. So the dad was, the dad was in agreement with me. The energy, that's something I've always felt from a young boy. I know when the energy's good and I know when the energy's bad and the snap of a finger, I can identify it. And his energy was just gone. It was almost like, I don't even really want to be here anymore. That's what his energy was saying. So like I do many people that I've taken to jail, we had a long conversation on the way to jail. It was so sad because it was Christmas. When I got out of that jail, it was Christmas. And to know that this young man would be locked up on Christmas because he committed a crime against his family was just one of the saddest things that I've ever seen in my life. The positive that I grabbed from this is that he didn't want to do the things that he was doing. He didn't have another excuse. If he really was that shady about it, he probably would have never seen his parents again. But immediately this young man felt guilt. Makes me draw, I draw, inform, I draw energy from that because of just where I grew up. I've seen a lot of people in the 1980s, crack cocaine ran through a lot of these cities. Vallejo was one. And there was a lot of negativity, a lot of shootings, a lot of killings, people becoming addicted. That is part of what I brought to that call. I recognize that because those were the things that were happening in my neighborhood, too, a lot of inner city neighborhoods. And so when it comes to treating people right, that young man, I treated him like not just like a regular person, but just to understand that what he's going through is important. And I will pray for him to help him get through it. But that's the type of love that you give people when you look at the job like I did. 
I recognized that this young man had an issue, and I wasn't going to treat him like a suspect or treat him like a criminal. I had a conversation with him, and hopefully that conversation did some good. That was a very, very tough call for me to deal with, though. One of the hardest. 